calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Here we are. Hey, Great. So... One of our last shows of the year, maybe our last show of the year. Actually, I wait, I think we might have one more this year after this. But yes. so exciting for those of you who are listening. If you celebrate, Merry Christmas, because this is accidentally now our our Christmas episode, although we don't have a holiday theme. If you can see the video, I have a Christmas lights strung around my neck, but that's that's our only real homage to the holidays. Why don't we catch up, honey, and see what's been going on? Well, you know, it's that kind of party. I started the <laughs> choir cut you off. I'm, I'm giving the choir director the side eye over there, the band director the side eye. So what were you about to say? Well, just going to say that uh, a lot of my focus has been at the end of every year on thinking back over what that year has been and getting ready for the next year. So I, I start that generally toward the beginning of December, so I have a chance to take a look. We've got a lot of really interesting things happening at this point. You don't, you never know what's going to fall through, but right now, it, it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's yes. some that are getting ready to happen. And so the question is one of how to address them with maximum responsibility and remaining in balance because – in some ways, the thing that, that might very well happen is what we've been aiming at for years. So it would be very easy to either throw ourselves into it and hurt ourselves, you know, because you, you can't sprint all the way to Disneyland, you know. Trying to pull all-nighters That's and, right. you know, That's get right. overexcited. <laughs> or, or to underestimate its importance. Yes. That, the truth is that this is the opportunity in some ways, you know, it's not literally true, but the opportunity of a lifetime is not a totally incorrect characterization of this moment. But in other ways, it has to just be chop wood, carry water. We just have to do what we do and, you know, stroll through it with, but with, I think, an extraordinary amount of awareness of the fact we have to bring our absolute A game. 
Yeah, you can't be overawed by opportunities so that you are kind of paralyzed in terms of your creativity and energy. But at the same time, you don't want to underestimate it. Like you said, be like, ah, we got this. And in fact, you know, we may well got this, but it's always best to assume that there will be a learning curve. Yeah. And we'll have I can't to- wait until we can talk about this more directly. I know. As soon as it's there as soon as there so are announcements. Fun. Um, it would Yes, because it's, we'll be we're going to be able to talk about our process as we go into this. I can, you know, I already am trying to kind of upgrade what it is that I'm doing to have more direct contact with my creativity. That bridge between the conscious and the unconscious mind. There has to be both structure and release. So I need to learn to structure better, and I need to learn to release more deeply. It's Whatever it is that got us to this point, I think it is useful to both gain clarity on what that was and also to simply have faith, let go and let it flow. Yes. And what I'm really proud of is that we set forth with a three-year plan or was it a four-year plan? I think it was a three-year plan back in 2018 or so. And for the most part, we have been following our plan. And although you can't predict some of the outcomes and a lot of it, I know, right? (laughs) And a lot of it has to do with, with Hollywood, which is one of the most competitive environments in the world. So you only have so much control there. In fact, our guest coming up, producer Courtney Lee Mitchell, will be talking all about that. But you can't always predict what's coming up. But we have done such a great job of doing our part which is the part that we can control is the writing. We can control the quality of the writing. We can control the output of the writing Uh, to some degree. We can control how we put ourselves in situations where we will meet people and network. So you can control how much input, you know, how many movies do you watch? How many scripts do you read? How many books do you read? You can control that pretty completely. You can't control who you're going to meet, but you can control being in places where you have a better opportunity statistically to meet people. And then you can choose from those groups, people who you both like and can forward your career. That's yes. the trick. You've got the two different circles. And what you want to do is look where those circles overlap. You don't pretend to like people. No. Nor do you bond yourself to people who are going in an opposite direction. They you know, go with God, have a wonderful life, but I need to get where I'm going. Right. It's like, you know, and and I love writers. I love screenwriters. And it reminds me of a friend in college who was of a certain ethnic group. And and his mother was looking forward to him marrying a woman of that same ethnic group. She's like, you can marry anyone. Why shouldn't she be? You know, yes, it's like, yes. yeah, right. And it's like, duh. Well, and I kind of feel that way about writers. I can have any kind of friends. Why sure. shouldn't they be television writers and screenwriters? Yeah, I mean, so many of my friends are either writers or in the writing game in some way, you know, specifically in fandom or are martial artists, you know, or yogis or somebody you know, who who understand that, that, that you have to, you know, the easiest way to determine where you're going to end up in life is to count up all your friends and divide by the number of friends, and you're going to be right in the middle of the pack. Isn't that you know, the same thing we tell our kids, our teenagers, right? Be very careful who you associate with. Yes. It's not that other people are bad, and it's not that you pretend to like people. I think that that's, that's difficult. It's that of the people who are heading in in the direction that you're trying to go in, those the people heading in your direction are, in that sense, your tribe. Yes. So you find someone who is your tribe heading to the same direction at about the same speed. That's what I sensed in you, honey. Mm. You know that you, we were going in the right in the same direction. So the yes. fact that you were attractive and single and heading in the same direction and seemed to have similar values made it. You know, it it just I said yowza. You know, this is this is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, we recognized each other. We sure. recognized each As other. Fellow, fellow it, travelers. That's I think that that's critical because you know, find there is nothing that is more valuable in your career or life than earning your way into the circle of people who are further down the road than you, who will then say, "This is where the path is." They can't do the writing for you or the work for you, but they can let you know whether or not you're doing the work you need to do to get to the mountain. That is a great transition, I think, to today's guest. Who Do you agree? Go for it. Let's move on. Absolutely. Lee Mitchell is a producer and has been part of a team responsible for bringing Octavia Butler's Kindred 
to television on Hulu through FX. So a little bit about Courtney from 2007 to 2012. She worked in development for Cinemosaic, the New York City-based production company founded by Lydia Dean Pilcher. Amongst the films on which she worked during her time there, the Mira Nair directed films, The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Amelia, as well as the Searchlight feature film, Notorious, about the life of Notorious B.I.G., directed by George Tillman Jr. Y'all might remember him from Soul Food. After leaving Cinemosaic, Courtney began developing projects including Kindred through her company, Fourth Power film. She's a graduate of UCLA School of Law, of course, and Bard College. So welcome to the show to Courtney. And where's the video? Oh, I see what to do. <laughs> hey, Courtney, welcome. Welcome Thank to you. the show. You see, we've got a whole audience here and, and we're going to do everything we can to make you feel welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, really. <laughs> I hope I do okay. No, you're, oh, you're gonna going to do amazing. And first of all, I just have to say congratulations. Let's just start with absolute congratulations for the miracle of getting a Black project on TV. <laughs> Yeah, the, I think that the taking people, a long time. It has. People, I think, often don't understand the headwinds <laughs> that you have to fight to get anything on television, even if you are the perfect demographic. But move outside that perfect demographic. Would you share with us? I mean, as is politically correct and economically and socially correct, <laughs> as we're all trying to work in this that you ran into, because but, people need to understand what they're watching. And before we get to that, also, I just want to set the table a little bit, if we could, because I first heard from you via email in 2013. I don't know if that was when you first got the rights to Kindred, but you were reaching out because you wanted to know people, get to know people who had known Octavia, which, by the way, I thought was such a gracious touch and gave me a very good feeling about you and this development process, because often it does get so far removed from the author and the core material that no one wants to know about it, hear about it. You're not like that. You invited us to the premiere. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And but but since 2013, <laughs> as Steve was leading to, you've had uh, some ups and downs. So so what would you say were some of the biggest reasons it took till 2022 to get Kindred on the air? It was actually before 2013. I first I had not heard of Octavia Butler when I learned of Kindred and of her other works. My husband, who's a big sci science fiction reader, had heard about it when, you know, because because he just knew, he knew she, who she was. And we had taken our then two-year-old son around two, 2008 to Philadelphia. And we were sitting in Old Town, Philadelphia with my son and his fancy New York, you know, stroller, you know, these two well-educated Black people just hanging out. And I said to my husband, wouldn't it be weird if we closed our eyes and then woke up and we were in, you know, 1700s, 1800s Philadelphia, because we were in this area where unless you, if you ignored the cars and you didn't see the skyscrapers, it's, you know, it's old, it's old Philadelphia. And he said, well, it's funny that you should say that because there's actually a book in which a modern day black woman basically finds herself in, of course, not Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania Free State, but found herself in Maryland and has to, you know, figure out why she's coming back to this plantation to save this white kid. And so, and he's like, and, and for some reason, it, it's never been made into anything. None of her books have been made anything. And he was like, I, you know, you should read it. You should read it. And at that time, I was working for a producer in New York. So I read it and I was actually also surprised that that hadn't been made, that, you know, Parable of a Sower hadn't been made. And so in 2008, I started trying to figure out like who had the rights, how I, you know, I, I learned that she had passed away a couple years earlier. And so it, so I, it took me until about 2010, 11 to convince Marilee Heifetz, her literary agent and Gary Pearl, who was also involved with the estate at that time to let me give it a try because it had actually been optioned since it was published, but no one could get it made. I mean, some of it was because of, you know, they lost their deal, even if they had a script and a director, but it was also just, you know, no one, no one wanted to, 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 to do it for a variety of reasons, which, you know, are not surprising. Right. 
And so, you know, so I initially started optioning it in around 2010, 2011, when we finally sort of got the deal all squared, squared away. And I started to, you know, try to talk to people about it, see, you know, if I could get some interest, you know, from a writer or a writer director or a director. And I just couldn't, I mean, people are like, well, I don't know if anyone wants to see anything about slavery or I don't know about, you know, from that point of view, you know, point of view from a black woman, you know, you know, a, a movie. I was trying to make a movie at the time, mm. you know, of the, a black female star who is, you know, in her early to mid 20s, which means that, you know, you, you had you would have to find an actress who, you know, met something money wise in order for you know, it to mean anything. And, you know, this is time travel. And, you know, even if, you know, and at that point, because it was the late 2000s, you know, I was probably going to keep either do present day at that time or or keep it in the 70s, which would means, you know, double historical, which, you know, also increases the potential budget because you're having to recreate two different time periods in the past. And so, you know, you know, and I, I was still trying to go the indie route. So we're not even talking about, you know, Many, many, many millions. Oh, right. This is the indie route. Well, let me stop you for a second. Was this during the era when it was like Hallie or Nobody in terms of a female lead for a Black woman? Yeah, I remember yeah. that era. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And, you know, and so I finally, you know, I was a friend of mine who had had done a lot of work in South Africa and knew that like that South Africa was trying to increase in film production there. They have a lot of a lot of incentives and things like that. And you could get a lot of money if you had a South African producer, you know, you could get a lot of money just from that. And so we tried to go that route and that in, and you talked to the writer and director at that point that I was working with, they were, they were white. But I thought it was interesting, their point of view as two people who had grown up in apartheid South Africa, you know, and and had lived in a time period where Black people needed passes, you know, to be out at a certain time or not. So I thought it, at a minimum, it would be an interesting, they would be, and they were massive fans of Octavia Butler's. They're like, you know, there's people who like Back to the Future, like they stole that idea from Octavia Butler. They were like, like hardcore. I forgot um, all about them. You're right. We did. I, we did talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but we couldn't get that. And we weren't even looking for a high budget. We were looking like $5 million, like, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's the crazy thing about indie film, right? Like those are, that's an enormous amount of money, yes. but in film, it's like a pittance. Right. And we could get about 4 million of that together. We even applied to like, I won't even, I won't name the programs that we applied to that we got passed on, but we really just couldn't get anyone interested Mm. and and it was around and so we couldn't get that last million and I was like you know I think this is just I have to like switch gears and my husband would see me like crying at night like oh my gosh what's gonna happen and you know and I was we were renewing the 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 option Marilee was so gracious to like be patient because she really we had met with her, talked to her, and she, you know, she told us about her relationship with Octavia, and and she really had been sort of like keeping the flame alive. We would get updates when when Kindred was listed in book lists and things like that, you know, to to read. And then finally, around twenty fifteen or so, I heard that, or merely told me that Protozoa was interested in Kindred, which I thought was you know interesting. And let me say, I mean, I pitched. I pitched the project to people who are now like all over trying to get Octavia Butler projects. Mm-hmm. Like these are people who like when I was trying to come with them with Kindred, they're like, I don't know. Do you think? And this is black people and white people. So okay. I don't want to say it was white people. It was black people and white people, you know, because it's still about the, you know, what they think the bottom line is, what they think the audience wants. And of course, you know, a lot of times they don't want to be, take the risk unless you know, Hollywood's full of lemmings in a lot of ways, right? Especially Everybody wants to be first to be second. Right. Yeah. Very risk averse industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, yep. you can get fired over a flop. So yep. saying yes Absolutely. is a very brave act on the part of an executive. <laughs> yep. And so around this time, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who is now the showrunner, had been, you know, winning awards as a playwright. And the executives over at Protozoa had seen a lot of his work and wanted to find something to work with him about. And they asked him, so Brandon, what is it that you want to do? And he said, well, there's this book that I've been in love with since I was a 
teenager. It's never been made. And I don't quite understand why. And I've been trying to figure out who has the rights. And if you can help me find that, I'll do it. And that was Kindred. And so they connected with me and they're like, look, like, would you be willing to switch gears and do this as a television show instead of as a film? And I was like, you know, by this point I had gotten rejected by, you know, so many people and programs. I mean, this was 2016. I'd started this journey, you know, and, you know, if I count when I first read the book and knew that it was something I wanted to try to make, that's 20, that's 2008. Wow. But you know, you get, you get tired and I had to purchase the rights because I didn't want to lose because I was like, okay, I want to be the Mm. one that's purchase the rights. My so you exercise the option. Okay. Yeah. Mortgage so my your husband, house. <laughs> no, well, kidding. luckily my husband has a very good job. I mean, that's, okay. you know, I, I don't even want to tell you how I started out in this industry and the knowledge that so many people who are able to be assistants for long periods of time without making real money, money to fall back on in some way or shape, which was not me until. Oh, that's a whole conversation. That is going to be part of the reason why even black filmmakers are going to be very nervous because if they've clawed their way to a position like that, they cannot, they cannot afford to waste the capital that got them there. They can't do that. It's irresponsible. So I I I have tremendous empathy for them. I left the industry at one point because I just couldn't afford to live in LA and like make $18,000 a year and have loans from law school and blah, blah, blah. Like I left. Right. That's a whole different story. But now it's much more financially secured. A husband who had like a relatively normal, well-paying job. And so we, he was like, he's like, you got to make this, you got to make this. So he was willing to like, let me purchase the rights. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Beautiful. So, so you were put together with your showrunner. It's kind of like that Elton John, Bernie Taupin thing, because <laughs> I thought they were like buddies and started out together, but their label just put them together like randomly, like, oh, you write, you sing, let's see how. Yeah, yeah, great. And also because we knew that if we could set it up, I would get reimbursed. So it was like money that, that we knew that if I could do it, we could actually. So what get were it the back. considerations in? making a and transferring it from a movie, which is basically just take this story that has a beginning, middle and end and these characters and these themes and thinking about a four season arc, you know, what were, what were some of the thought patterns that, that, you know, what were some of those discussions? And before you get to that, did you always think of it as a, like a, a series rather than a limited series? I, when they first said television, I think my, my head first went to limited series. Right. So like straight, you know, because it's a book, it's not really that long of a book. But Brandon had always thought that it could be multi-season shows and not long seasons. You know, we're not talking about, you know, even 12, 15 episodes, but short seasons. And if you think about it, it's really, you know, even if you do do four seasons or four or five seasons, if you're only doing eight to 10 episodes, that's basically one season, you know, back in the day when we were kids. Right. Like that is. I tell him that is one season, uh, but he thought there were stories in the book that we didn't get a chance to see that, you know, a book can only hold so much. And 
there were things that, you know, he thought, well, you know, if she had, if Kindred had been part of a, a big, a longer book, what, what other stories might we have had a chance to see that as a 280 or so page book, you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity. He thought that there were stories, there were aspects of different characters that you could learn about that could then span multiple seasons. And that because so much of what's going on with Dana is like in her head and as she's thinking about things, that goes faster in a book. But if you want to show it, because, you know, in, in, you know, video or audiovisual things you need to show you can't always be in someone's head and so the the time to show that the, the time to make things that she's thinking visual that also takes up extra time and so you know he convinced me that it was worth you know trying to do that and we yeah. worked for a year on a pitch with protozoa pitched it first to, they had a deal at another company that we pitched it to and they passed and and then they ended up trying to do another one, another one of her projects. But that, again, that's an issue. <laughs> and then we went out to L.A. and we pitched to multiple networks, even a network that focuses on science fiction, but didn't want to do this because it wasn't science fiction enough. Oh, let me ask you this. What year was this you were out pounding the pavement in L.A.? This was 2017, I think. Twenty so. Like, might have been the end of 2016. So Get Out hadn't come out yet. And mm-hmm. Black Panther hadn't come out yet. One, one question I, I want <laughs> to ask. Gangland Chained and 12 Years a Slave had. One question. That, I think, changed the, the equation, the, too. One question mm-hmm. I'd like to ask, and you can decline to answer it because it, it might not be. It might not be the kind of question that you want to answer. But did you address the question or did you look at how could we take a book and stretch it into four seasons as opposed to if Octavia wrote sequels to this book, if there had been like four books in this series, what might they have been? Mm-hmm. Those are would be two different approaches and maybe you took a hybrid approach or something else altogether. But can you, is it reasonable? Is, is, would it be Would it be okay for you to address that question? Considering that you're right in the middle of, of, of the process right now, it might not be a question you want to answer, but I had to ask it. Well, I mean, I think Brandon really just wanted to focus on the book. Like, I always had this idea that, like, maybe multiple seasons could go past the ending of the book and either Dana would go back to, like, another time in American history, maybe a more recent time, like maybe she'd come back during Reconstruction or maybe right. she'd come back during Jim Crow, like take it out, you know, take the book as the first part of it and then go to other time periods. Right. Brandon really wanted to like stick with the time period of the book. Like, you know, he's the showrunner. And once, I mean, that's the other thing that, especially in television that people have to realize that if you're a non-writing EP, like I am, once you bring in a writer to develop the project, they are the showrunner. They right. are the boss. We give comments and notes and things like that, and as does the network, but it really becomes Brandon's property, Brandon's right. show. And, you know, we, you know, talked to Marilee about like, do you think that, you know, and we would, you know, while I was doing this as a film, but also as a you know producer, we would send Marilee, you know, version of the script. You know, she didn't want to like, you know, push anything, but she would just let her know, let you know, she had some ideas or thoughts about it. And I think that Brandon just wanted to keep the show, the show, and just wanted to take some of the characters and, and sort of push it out. And he went to visit her archives. He looked at all the drafts. He looked at the notes that she had on the drafts. And, you know, even the, you know, the, even the, I, they're almost all the changes are things where he got some kernel of the idea from what was in the notes. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, if there are things where she, I want to try this. Oh, that's not going to work. Or, you know, when you write a book, it gets edited, right? I mean, there are things that you write that even if you want to keep it in the book, it doesn't fit for the length of the book or the goal length or your editor's like, well, you know, this doesn't really have to deal directly with the story. Maybe this should be taken out. So I think there are lots of things in the archives of that nature that it seemed to Brandon that, 
these are things that she might have wanted to consider or think about, but for a variety of reasons, didn't make it into well, the, the one thing that you can be absolutely certain of is that no matter what you did, there'd be people who approved of it and people who disapproved of it, that that is yeah. going to be 100% true. So all you can really do is to try to find someone whose heart is in the right place and whose head is in the right place. And to a certain degree, you know, cast your bread upon the waters, just kind yeah. of like hope that this works out and work your butt yeah. off. I'm heartened by the fact that he went to the library and looked Absolutely. at the papers and was seeking guidance from Octavia, mm-hmm. even posthumously. And I won't get too I won't get too spoilery because I'm sure some viewers haven't had a chance to binge through the whole series, the whole season yet. So I won't give too much away. But I, one of the the key changes has to do with why is this happening. Right. And and Octavia doesn't address that in the novel Kindred. It's kind of like the zombie apocalypse. For the most part, we never know why zombies showed up. They're just here and you have to deal with them. And, and Dane is kind of like that. OK, this is happening. I don't know why. And the why was never that important. And it's a little bit more important in, in the series version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even in the series, I think it's not like th- there's never going to be a machine that takes her back. Right. You know, there's never there's is no clean ish region other than the reason we already know that it's related to ultimately related to Rufus. I'll yes. say ultimately yeah. because there are other things that are that now happen. That but sense, it's still ultimately related to him. In in that sense, it's it's magic. You know, you want to tell a story and this is what you need in order to tell the story. So this is what we're going to use. It's not like something written by a hard science fiction writer who's going to talk about gluons going back in time. And we're going to, you know, that kind of thing we have. There's no mechanism that we can explain for time travel in in that way. So what we had there was a very fine, exceptionally fine science fiction writer who in this particular instance is writing kind of fantasy because she wants to use that extrapolative capacity and extreme humanity to tell a story. It's like, if you will, if you will accept that this could happen, mm-hmm. you will suspend your disbelief that this could happen. I will tell you a story that will move your heart. And mm-hmm. and that is storytelling. That's the, the once upon a time goes there. It's not about the time travel. It's about the time traveler. So mm-hmm. in that, in that sense, you know, what I can tell our, our, listeners is that I I believe that what you're going to see there is an honest effort by people who genuinely cared and had the talent to bring something special to the screen. And what I am hoping is that people will give it a chance. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just about giving it a chance. I mean, you know, adaptations are a tricky thing, right? Because you have people who love, love, love the book or love, you know, whatever book is being adapted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a picture in your mind of like what it's going to look like. And I mean, that's the beauty of reading, right? It's like you can create what, even with what's the written on the screen, you can sort of create it in your mind. Yes. And so having to take, having to watch someone else take what you have this picture in your mind of and do something different with it can be really jarring. And, you know, you're going to make decisions that you might not have made and, you know, whether they're successful about it, I, you know, I can't be the one to judge, but, you know, there's a certain amount of like, well, this is this person's experience and what they wanted the the viewer as opposed to the reader to take away from the story. So we, we last left our intrepid duo pitching throughout L.A., <laughs> In 2017, late 2016, lots of doors being slammed. I like returning to this part of the story because this is where so many screenwriters are. You know, there are screenwriters who listen to the show. We're doing pitching. It's like, oh, a year on the pitch. That's good to know. Because we spend forever on these pitches, too. What was it like to pitch it and then and then let us live vicariously through you when you sold it? <laughs> what was that like? So I will I will say one other reason, you know, that it was amazing to to decide to go with Brandon and Protozoa, because, again, getting people to return your calls, getting people to meet with you. I mean, I would have people schedule. I live in New York. I would have I would say I'm going to be out in L.A. Can I meet with you? They'd say, great. And then I get to L.A. and they cancel. Oh, no. you know, I need to reschedule. And I like I, I don't live here. So it's like, you know, it's too real. 
Yeah. And it's just, and people that, that I knew or people that knew people that I knew. So I was getting referred to these people, but it was still happening. Uh, and so there's, there was definitely a part of us like protozoa. That's Darren Aronofsky. Darren, people are going to return his company's phone calls. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? like, right. People, you know, I don't, not- I don't think people understand how many dominoes have to fall in a row in the right timing to get anything done. You know, and if you're yeah. on the outside of that and you, you've just published some books or some short stories, you can publish a, a short story if one person says yes. You can get a book published sometimes, you know, oftentimes if one or two people say yes. But a, a movie or television series, what, do a dozen different people have to say yes all in yep. a row and any one of them says no? So that's, yep. you know, and mad respect that you got through that process. <laughs> you know, so we, you know, worked on the 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 pitch. And then we went to LA. Darren didn't go, but two of his executives came and Brandon and I went to LA and we met with all these companies. FX was the first place that we pitched. Oh, and there was a black assistant there, you know, which was like, okay, good sign. It's like, there's a black person and, and a woman. And we're like, okay, good sign. So we pitched it. They really liked it, but we went on and pitched to all these various networks. One or two said yes, but the others passed. So, you know, even with this, we, it's not like Everyone was screaming and it was going to be this like, you know, bidding war. It's like most places passed. There were like two or three that were interested. There was one that like didn't want to, you know, the numbers that they were thinking about weren't great. And FX was like, we love this. We want to do it. Like no hesitation. They knew they actually called us like, I think it was even the day of like later in the day of that meeting. Again, it was the first meeting. And they said, we know you're like, you know, going around, but let's just, we'll just tell you now, we want it. That's you know? so great. That's Fantastic. a great yeah. feeling. How did but, that feel? Pause it. Oh, no, there's a but. There's a but. It was awesome. No, okay, it was yeah. t- because like, you know, I've been trying to get in front of people for so long and to finally have a network that was a prom, I mean, a big name, right? It wasn't just like a small whatever and not to say anything about small ones either joe's but, network you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a real place with like real money right they can like actually put stuff in it and to have them want to do it and like with no reservations right they weren't like oh give us we like it but let us think about it. no they like they were like we we want it so that was awesome but then Uh-oh. a month later the executive that we met with left the company. Oh, uh, like for another job. I uh, hate it when that happens. <laughs> oh, that's so scary like, when that happens. That that on its own can be the death of a project. Right? Yes. If the executive leaves, then oftentimes any of the projects that they were wanting to do just sort of die. Right. I mean, that's actually that happened before in the history of Kindred, where people the the one of the production companies that was make it and had a script had a director, they lost their deal. Mm-hmm. And so everything dies. So we were like, oh no, oh no, oh no, what is going to happen? But again, that FX really liked it as a company, right? It wasn't just this one executive. The other executive who was in the room with us was also a fan. And so the project did not die after that executive left. It Whew. kept moving forward. The, you know, and the executive that was also in the room kept getting promoted. <laughs> as did her assistant, you know, great, great, so, great. so yeah, so we just, you know, kept on rolling, but the development process takes a long time. And this is also a funny thing because, you know, a lot of places make announcements for their projects before paperwork has been signed, before anything is really solid. And both Protozoa and FX are really try to be very careful about announcing projects until they really, really, really it's happening because, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many stories of projects being announced and five years later, you know, it's like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And so they really want to be sure that it's happening, you know, when they make an announcement. So we spent a lot of time in development, you know, meanwhile, Brandon is getting more and more television work. You know, he's writing on The Watchmen. He was also in a lot of room, mini rooms. So he was getting a lot of television work and he he was Mac- MacArthur Fellow and yeah. You know, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, also. And so, you know, it it took a while 
to get a draft of a pilot that FX was like, okay, we think we're almost there. We think we're almost there. And that brings us to like the end of 2019 mm-hmm. when they were like, okay, we're close. We're close. And by that time, they brought on another executive named Megan Reed, who comes from the New York publishing world. She's also a Black woman who is also a, a big Octavia Butler fan. And she and I can't remember the, the assistant who is now a creative executive. Her last name is I don't remember her first name, but her last name, but her first name is DeJoy. So mm-hmm. we had two Black women who were also like keeping the fires burning for Kindred at FX. Because, you know, life happens. There are, you know, Things you have to you you have to have like cheerleaders in yes. there who are willing to like make sure it keeps getting brought up in meetings, make sure that like people are remembering that we're working on it and you know doing notes and stuff. So by 2019, we were almost there, and then they're like, we want to bring in experienced showrunners because Protozoa has been a film company for the most part. I, you know, have been indie film, you know, but on the development side. Brandon, while he's been in rooms, is a theater guy. So we didn't have anyone with like extensive television not you know making knowledge which this was going to be like a big project right mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know it's going to be a pretty decent budgeted show so they brought on Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg who had been the creators of The Americans which you know there's a part of it's just like oh my god you know middle middle class middle aged you know white men and you know we already have brand you know you know Ari and the protozoa execs but at the same time, we thought Charles won. I mean, the Americans are great television show, great True. writing, right? They know story, right? But also, to us, it also showed how much FX wanted to make the project because they were willing to pay for these two dudes to come on and help us get the pilot to a place where they were like ready to go. And we thought that showed an enormous amount of faith. And desire to actually make this because you don't spend the money on these guys unless you really want. You guys are playing three dimensional chess, trying to put (laughs) together the the right allies who have the right skills and the right perspectives who don't have hidden agendas who you can communicate with, who can also talk to the people above them who have a track record such that they are trusted. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, if you go back to thinking about Atlanta, like, didn't Donald Glover say he had like a a whisperer that could like, you know, moderate, you know, moderate between like what he wanted to do and what the network needed Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You need a whisperer. Well, you know, I love the pilot. And that was where you invited us to the premiere. So we got to see it in, in grand style. And they really invested not only in bringing in the team, but they went prestige all the way in terms of, um, um, uh, bailing the show but pilots are tough pilots are very tough we've written pilots you know we've seen pilots that that we don't like what was the biggest challenge in the kindred pilot would you say well one there was a big debate on where to shoot it because you know you know they still have to take you know even though it's a you know it's a good but decent budget you know they still have to take into consideration the costs of making it and so trying to just figure out like where it was going to shoot i mean you know it wasn't going to shoot in maryland just because there isn't really enough of a tv film industry there and incentives don't really exist you know there's la which you know is you know it was more expensive, but that's where Janixa Bravo, who's the direct who directed the pilot, lives. And of course, the pilot, you know, half the show, if not seventy five percent of the show, is actually set in LA. Then there was at Atlanta, which has now the the background that you know they they have the crews now in Atlanta. They didn't have, but it's hard because everyone is working in Atlanta. And there was even thought about upstate New York because you could get sort of the rural stuff there mm-hmm. and most almost all of all of the ep team or live in new york city so you know we were like okay new york um, <laughs> it sounds good yeah. yeah but we ultimately decided to go with los angeles in part because genix was like look we want to make sure that we feel that these guys are in los angeles we want to we want it to make we want to make sure that it looks like los angeles because we knew the show the show itself was not going to get shot in la so we need to make sure that we set up la so that anywhere else that we might shoot it could 
you know, people have already accepted the fact that it's Los Angeles. So, so once we did that, then things kind of, you know, then we had to do, you know, auditions and, you know, all that stuff. And COVID, um, by the way, is happening. So, oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. When Jay's came on to help Matt, Brandon, you know, get the pilot into shape that FX could like then green light COVID, you know, oh. so, you know, that prevented them from being able, you know, it's, it's, you know, Zoom is great, but it's still not the same as being in a writer's room, right? right? And so, you know, trying to like, you know, help work with Brandon and 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 get to the they could, you know, meeting in person wasn't really going to be possible. And just you know, the the development process, which I don't know if a lot of people sort of know how it works, is like, you know, Brandon would give us a draft and we'd give him our notes, and then you know, then he you know futz with it and then we'd give it to the studio and then the studio would give their notes and then you know brandon would futz like the amount of notes in the development process is really it's a lot it's you know? a lot a lot <laughs> oh it's my hard god you're writer because you gotta have pe- people are like saying that like you didn't do this or you didn't do that or you should do this and it's like and you gotta you know be able to like figure out what are the real notes Versus what are the yes? I I kind of looked at that as you're trying to thread a bunch of moving needles, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to keep everybody invested. Because if anybody starts feeling like you're not listening to them, they zone out and their Mm. lack of it. And sales is is a, a transfer of enthusiasm. If you if you lose the enthusiasm of the very people, like I said, if you have a dozen people who have to say yes, only one of them has to say no. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and we, we, we should do it. <laughs> of course, and we, and it's we not really even sh- better. It's not even better if you're using your own money. You know, actors, mm-hmm. directors, writers who use their own money to produce things. Most of the time, it falls flat on its face. So it's clear yep. that the, the collaboration process is part of what makes it palatable to a mass audience. You know, it's God. It's so counterintuitive in terms of of what artists are, but it seems to be necessary to that question of how do you create a piece of mass media? And yeah. That, it's this, really hard to walk that line. This is the part of screenwriting that feels like science as opposed to art. I mean, there are structural yeah. things in screenwriting that also feel like science, but navigating the gatekeepers and the executives, I, we should do a whole podcast episode on just fulfilling notes because there's a real, yeah, there's a will. real science to it. Making it, people it feel heard like, without ruining your project. Is it a little bit like, coaching a sports team or conducting an orchestra or conducting a (laughs) chorus where you've got all these different people and you have to find some way for all their voices to be in harmony with each other. I mean, is it kind of like that? Yeah. And, and also like when you don't, when the writer doesn't agree with their note, with the note that they're given, how to explain it to the network or the, or the executive, why, that won't work because Brandon's not just thinking about the pilot or any individual episode. He's thinking about the season that he has in his mind. He's thinking about what might happen in season two and knows that this note might mess up yes. what he's thinking about for the future. And right. you also need a balance between a writer who will listen to the notes and one who will stand up for themselves and one who stands up for themselves so much that they reject the outside input. So there's there's a real a range in there that book writers don't have to go through. Book writers no. can sit in their basement and just make themselves happy. That's and one of the be- things that's the most difficult, I think, for prose writers to yeah. adjust to when they're mm-hmm. trying to work in Hollywood, particularly in television, but also film. Believe me, there's there are a lot of notes involved there. And when when Steve and I were working on Horror Noir, the anthology series that AMC did, the executives did say they appreciated that we stood up for ourselves. But you, that wouldn't have worked if we hadn't known how to stand up for ourselves intelligently and collaboratively. And, and there's a difference between standing up for yourself and, and being an a-hole, right? You also have to choose, you have to pick your battles. Yeah. You have to decide. And also be open to the idea that maybe an idea that you didn't really like actually might work. That's oh, right. Yeah. You there, might be wrong. You know, that, I've seen those. You know? Yep. I mean, there have been many cases where somebody will say something and I have to remember to myself, this person at the least is an intelligent audience member. It, maybe they don't know a tremendous amount about the writing of it, but they know what they like. 
And are they part, are they similar to the audience that I'm trying to reach? To a certain degree, that's the most you can hope for is that the people in the room are going to be a decent sample of the people you want to enjoy the series, in which case you better listen to what they say, because otherwise you're saying, well, I don't care about that segment of the audience. That navigating that, I think, I, I hope it can be developed because we're playing a game right now where we're hoping that we can learn that at a higher level than we yes. have in the past. Yes. So what are the personality characteristics of the creative people that you see from your position enable them to both touch the artistic part of themselves and listen to the business part of their partners? What does that take? Well, one, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if we got lucky, but you know, the EP team and the FX execs that we've been working with are real, I think are really just nice people and want the show to be the best show that it could be. And that all the notes were driven by that concept. Again, we might disagree with the notes. Brandon might have disagreed with most notes that I had or anyone, anyway, but ultimately we had faith that everyone had the same goal. So they had the, you felt like they had the same vision for the show? I don't know if I would say vision necessarily because, you know, people want different things as the focus and you know, we had to sort of push back on certain kinds of things, but but we knew that the reason that they had the idea was because they wanted to make a show that that was faithful to the book but could also bring in an audience and that would be good. So we had, you know, you have to make sure that you're working with people that at a minimum want to make the best show possible. Now, you may have different ideas on what that is, but, you know, no one is trying to just like make schlock and throw it out there. Right. You know, everyone wanted to make a good show. They wanted to make Brandon's show. They wanted to make Octavia's book. And again, you know, as it, you know, when you're changing mediums, you have to sort of take that into consideration. You know, the issue of like present day, present day to us versus present day to Octavia, like all these little, you know, all these story elements. Yes. I mean, there are going to be disagreements about what should be done, but we all had ultimately the same goal of making the best thing possible and to get it to the screen. And hopefully, you know, once you put it out there, you can't, you, you know, you can't really. It is. It becomes what it becomes once it's out in the world. You can't. But you can't explain it to everybody who watches it. And you know, one thing I want to ask about, especially coming from horror, a term that we hear a lot as it relates to black projects is trauma porn because of this idea of lynching as horror that some people lean into, which which Hollywood executives picked up on very very quickly because they were already uncomfortable about making black projects. If they get a whisper that the black audience doesn't want to see this, then meeting over. So anyone who's read Octavia Butler's novels knows that she does not flinch away from violence. And Kindred, the novel, has a lot of very explicit violence. What was your balancing act in trying to adapt it to television, being true to the nature of slavery, but without trauma porn? Well, I mean, we wanted to avoid trauma porn no you know but knowing that the you know the physical graphic violence of the book is you know and it's important because that's what slavery was but we also felt that you know after 12 years of slave and jangling chained and un, you know underground railroad that one we know what that looks like and especially if you want people to come back mm. for multiple episodes hopefully multiple seasons that you really can only, I mean, up, I mean, people can only take so much. Right. And I know people that even to the extent that what we do have in the show for some people is still too much. Right. You know, because just the concept of slavery and even just the, because what we do is like we show the beginnings of stuff, but we don't show the full extent of it. Smart. And, and we show a lot of the psychological aspects of it. And when I say psychological, I don't even mean sort of like the looking in the teeth that we saw in 12 Years a Slave, right? But just the way that the slave masters talked about the people that they enslaved, they referring to them as chattel in their presence, mm-hmm. right? 
or stock. And even to the extent that we see in one scene, a stock, one of the enslaved people refer to themselves as stock. Mm. You know, there's a scene with the children that I can't, I couldn't even watch it when we were shooting it. And it's, it's not graphically violent in any way, shape or form. So I have to ask a question. What you're saying right now begs a very specific question. You mm-hmm. talk about how long it took you to get to the screen, how much you wanted, all the obstacles. But then once you actually are there, there's still a huge amount of stress because of the thematic nature, the the images that you're doing, the concern about how the audience is going to feel about it. So your your task, not as a producer, but as a human being, is to be able to put on your producer's hat and do these things, but then step away from that. You have children. You have you have a husband, you have a life, you have a body that is holding all of the stress that in order for it to function well, you have to take care of all these different things. How you'd be doing us a real favor if you would discuss how did you keep your sanity through all of this? How, you know, what what daily rituals or attitudes or resources or allies did you use to keep from going? I'm a meditator. Great. I, you know, I try to get, do it, a, you know, twice a day in the morning and the evening, but I at least get it once a day, at least 20 minutes every day. Any particular um, form of meditation? I mean, I, I, I have a mantra. I mean, so I guess I do transcendental, but you know. Mantra but, meditation. You know. Some, yeah. some, a variation on, on, on TM. Yeah. yeah so I, I. Wonderful. That at least twice, at least once a day. And I try to do it, you know, in the morning and the, in the I love evening. it. I love it. Um, and I think one great, well, luckily I'm from Atlanta. I grew up there and my mom still lives there with my sister. And so when I visited the set during the shooting of the series, the first time I stayed in the hotel, you know, put up by the network, but the next couple of times I stayed with my mom. Great. I would have done the same thing. Absolutely. So you're, you're discussing, do you exercise? I do. I mean, I try to, I haven't been able to do as much the last year because there've just been crazy stuff going on physically, but I, you know, was doing Ashtanga yoga. Yes. Incredibly powerful yoga. So that's fantastic. I I trained as a teacher in Ashtanga and it's, it's amazing stuff. So you're talking about, I would bet that you probably walk. Yeah, well, in New York, right? You know, walk yeah, exactly. The so there is a certain amount really of physical engagement. City, <laughs> your heart space is your mom. Your head space, you're doing, you know, I forget what, yeah. trans something, you know, meditation. Some, yeah. some, some I brought version. my yoga mats to Atlanta. Yes. And when I, there was one time I forgot and I bought one. Yes. <laughs> I had to sit to my mom's house so I get that it. I didn't have an excuse. What I'm hoping is that our listeners We'll be able to listen. You came from outside the creative arena because you felt love for a property. Then you had to learn how to communicate with creative people in order to make this happen. Then in the creative firm, you had to learn how to maintain your center in order to get this happening. You had to balance between the creative and the practical to do these things. So what what we always hope is that people who are on the outside of the industry can see the path to getting into it. And people who are on the inside can see the path to raising their level. That that, that it is not magic, but it is a lot of work. And to raise tremendous work. What, sweetie? I was just going to say to raise your level in a balanced way. Yes. Because one thing that can happen when there's so much at stake, so much money, life-changing money sometimes, or mm-hmm. a life-changing opportunity, you can push too hard and burn out. And that is just real. Happens um, all the time. People die trying to get their Hollywood dreams fulfilled. Or destroy their relationships, destroy yes. their bodies. It is human beings. Most human beings are not exceptional they have the same amount of basic humanity, but they push it into one corner of their lives, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to create something something there. And it's very easy to end up neglecting your family or your health. It happens all the time, losing yourself. So you've you've given us a tremendous amount of real value in a, in a compressed form. And I really suggest that people go back and listen to it and take out their questions about the specificity and look at what the overall pattern is. Somebody bringing their passion and combining that with their energy and combining that with their intellect. Yes. And I'll, and I'll just something. say one other thing. Sure. And this is because this group of EPs, we have, have, have kids, right? So we had... Um, 
the Jays have children. Ari Handel, who is one of the EPs from Protozoa, has children. I have two kids. And the Jays is president production also has like a two or three-year-old. Wow. And it was very important that people felt that if they needed to tend to their families. Oh, and Brandon had a baby during the pandemic as well. Wow. So it was very important that people felt like if they needed to attend to their families, that they could do so without feeling guilty about it. Sounds like your your balance point was your heart. That's what it sounds like. You did work because with your body. worrying about their kids, like they're yeah. not going to be able to function on set. That's right. No. And no. if they neglect no. their kids, they're going to regret it for the rest of their lives. No amount of success externally compensates for getting hugged by a kid who loves you and trusts you completely. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, I love everything you've said, Courtney. Yeah. And 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 I now I have a full understanding of how this happened. I, I had a glimpse <laughs> of it back in 2013 when I got that first email from you. But you definitely have been walking with integrity and making smart choices and creating alliances that, that got this on the screen. And it's the first Octavia Butler adaptation on the That's screen. Right. I cannot say that enough. Congratulations. That is huge. Anyone is coming huge. next is standing on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. No, no, it's not it's not that. It's it's giving you credit. You know, it's yeah. it's saying that that anybody who comes next, some of them will will fall flat on their faces, others of them might do really really well, but you were the first. But I love that it's also leading people to the book and leading to people to Octavia. Like even the people who like I I watch I I look at Twitter. Even some of the people who aren't loving it they're like right. i have to go read the book now i have to go buy yes. the book like yes that is awesome yes yeah. it is. it's not the own you think it is to bring it down on twitter because if you attitude. say you're going to read the book because that's exactly what everybody wants thank and that's what so octavia much. would want is for people yep. to read the book so everybody well, yeah thank you so know. much for being with you yeah for being you with could, us you, you could conceivably go now or you could listen to what we're about to say next it's, <laughs> it's totally up to you you know T, t, you make a decision about where where we want to take this next little 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 well, it's life writing premium fire dance. Yeah, no, it's life writing premium. I think because I hope that Courtney has been inspiration. Actually, we could also talk about fire dance because it's all related to mastery and what we're How about. How do you keep your balance yes. in the midst of it? So yes. if if you want to go down there, then I'll talk can... about life writing premium. Then you can come up with fire dance, and then yeah. we'll uh, we'll go yeah, ahead. just our sponsor. Our official sponsor for this podcast, the reason it's called the Life Writing Podcast, is because we have a life writing year-long course of weekly modules that you get digitally to help lead you through every phase of the writer's life, from just pure inspiration, oh, I don't have time to write, I don't feel like writing, to polishing, to characterization, to what about screenplays, you name it. We are talking about it. And if you like this podcast, basically that's what our course is. You know, we have a lot of videos. We have PDFs. We have guest speakers, people like Courtney. who have One of the art. things that we have that most writing programs do not is we address the human dimension. Yes. The emotional. If you will listen between the lines, what Courtney is saying, being able to maintain your emotions, your hope, your faith over time, your energy, not getting burned out, taking care of your family, your body, your sanity, navigating all these different relationships. If you lose track of the fact that you are the instrument that is doing all these things, if you lose your center there, Hollywood or any any career will eat you alive. Absolutely. the life writing process is basically two people who love each other, who put their family above everything, but still have managed to survive in the writing field, talking about the process that we go through and having conversations like this with other people who have not destroyed themselves right. <laughs> in the process of hitting a very high level of success. You know, you're operating in very rarefied ter- territory, Courtney. So in, in, to, in to not have false ego about that enables you to guide others. Yes. You can say, follow me. This is where the ice is thicker. You take care of your family. <laughs> you stay with your mom. You marry someone who will support you in your <laughs> dreams. These, This stuff may be difficult, and there's a lot of luck involved, but it's not an accident. No, it's not an accident, and luckily, these are replicable steps, and it all starts with actually writing, even if it's just a sentence a day. That's not just something we say, that's something we practice. So we get busy too. Sometimes I can only do a sentence, but I'm doing my sentence. That's and, right. And so Life Writing is at www.lifewritingpremium.com. And related to that, in terms of the balance and health, 
is the fire dance program that Steve started just a few weeks ago. Steve, yeah, tell me about that. Just doing this. Basically, the most powerful thing you can do that I know of from studying a dozen different traditions is that every day you make a declaration about who you are. You step into the person that you need to be to do the things to reach the destiny. And that means on the simplest level, you use affirmations at the same time that you're, say, walking. You do something physical to move your body, but you also have feelings of gratitude and love and hope and faith. And and you also are focusing on what you need to do today to move you towards your goal. So the, the program is the essential core. The Fire Dance program is the essential core of everything that we teach. And you can find out more about that at www.firedancetaichi.com. Thank you so much again to our incredible guest today, Courtney Lee Mitchell, who brought, who helped bring Kindred to the screen. Watch Kindred if you have not. Everybody have a very Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you for coming, everybody. Thank you, Courtney. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.